You are listening to Proof Text, a Glossa House podcast exploring scripture with Dr. T. Michael W. Halcombe and Dr. Frederick J. Long. Welcome and enjoy. Hello, everybody. I want to welcome you to this next episode of Proof Text, a podcast dedicated to looking and delving into the scriptural text and its context and to talk about its devotional practice and implication. Yeah. I'm with Michael Halcombe. How are you doing, Michael? I am well. I'm excited about this episode. We kind of were talking in the previous one about uh, (laughs) whether Jesus and Paul ever encountered each other. And I want to talk about that. There's there's this interesting verse um, in Acts 22.3 that I think it increases. When we take it with 2 Corinthians, the verse we were looking at before, Acts 22.3. Uh, it's Paul, he's giving this defense, and he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Um, and so uh, that's, that's another one of those things that I think could, I guess, contribute. I mean, I'm just trying, what I'm trying to do here is locate Paul in Jerusalem because, you know, Jesus spent some time there. I think that's the place of highest likelihood where their paths may have crossed. But, um, and then, yeah, we have in the following chapter where we know that in 2316, where Paul has some uh, family when the son of Paul's sister. So I guess that would be Paul's nephew nephew heard about this. He went into the barracks and told Paul, um, so you have Paul still having some family in Jerusalem and uh, Paul having been there. But either way, even if uh, Paul and Jesus never crossed paths, um, I, I we, we do have the Damascus Road encounter, which helps legitimate his apostleship. But I think the the opportunity for them having crawls paths may be some of the impetus for Paul's antagonism toward early followers of the way, early followers of Jesus. And so, yeah, no, he doesn't, he doesn't frame it as explicitly as he could have. I mean, he could have said formally, you know, hearing about or encountering Jesus, but hating him, you know, I started to gather them up. So it's just, we yeah. have little, little clues, possibly, that he did meet Jesus. But for him, yeah. it was the decisive encounter with the raised Christ, which made all the difference. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we agree on that. So, yeah. Galatians. Well, oh, you yeah, wanna- I was going to say, um, you know, it, one thing that's really, really, well, I'll, I'll get to that. I was just going to say something that's really intriguing to me about you know, as far as Paul and the life of Jesus, we'll get to this later in a later episode of Galatians, just about the virginal conception. So I want to, we'll, we'll talk about that later when we get into Galatians three, I think it is, but I don't want to go there today. Let's go back to Galatians one. Yeah. So we're in verse 13 and we'd like to start uh, by having Michael read the Greek text. If you have your Greek Bible, you should open it up and try to follow along if you have a, a Bible, any Bible, if you're following in English, we'll try to translate as we go and talk about the meaning of words and the syntax. So, Michael, why don't you get us started? 
Yeah, we have another gar here, by the way. So building on the previous verses or sentences, but um, it goes like this. A kusate gar ten emen anastrofen pote endo yudaismo potika hyperbolen vio contin equasiam duteu e portunaten. Yeah. Kind of hard to hear you. I don't know if there's really. Let me read it again. Muffled a little bit. Let me read it again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just in case. So, a kusate gar ten men anastrofen pote indo judaismo oti kat hypervolen dio contain ecclesian duteu ke portun aftain. Great. Yeah. Thank you. That was clear. So yeah, Michael's. Pointed out the gar, for you have heard, for for you heard, my formal, my my uh, my lifestyle once in in Judaism. Mm-hmm. That super abundantly, like way over the top, I was persecuting the Church of God and destroying it. <laughs> wow. So uh, here we get a, a an heiress indicative at the star from Akuo. You heard. And then we have an accusative uh, with a possessive pronoun, emain, uh, my lifestyle, pote yeah. once. This may be, um, once again, a proleptic idea that could be inc- could be pulled out uh, of the OT clause, but here it, I don't think it does work that way. I think rather the tain emain anastrophane is in fact uh, an accusative of reference. You heard about my former lifestyle and conduct in Judaism. This OT, mm-hmm. this whole. Yeah. Yep. I was persecuting the Church of God and destroying it. Yeah. So I like that recitative Oti there again. Yeah. Yeah, you heard that. Um, so this is continuing. The Gar seems to be continuing this idea of I, I'm making known to you. I'm making known to you. And so we're in this path, and he's appealing to what they heard. So you heard about... Um, yeah, and it's interesting. A kuo can take either the genitive as its direct object or the accusative. And uh, I remember seeing this come up uh, in Ephesians. You heard him, Paul says, heard about Christ, and it was with the accusative. And I thought, oh my, that uh, that maybe is directly hearing. Is he somehow appealing to them directly hearing Jesus? Because it was with the accusative rather than the genitive. I thought the genitive was to hear about, and then maybe the accusative would be to hear directly. Well, it's just the opposite. Mm. <laughs> it's just the opposite. If you look up a kuo with the genitive, that actually means would suggest hearing them directly, whereas the accusative is to hear about somebody. Yeah, so you can look that up in the lexicons and that there's a slight difference mm-hmm. uh, of cases and what it refers to. Yeah. 
Mm, yeah. That's good. Yeah. So you what, heard about my my lifestyle, my manner of living once in in Judaism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what is what do you what do you think he means by that in the Judaism in Judaism? Yeah, into you da da ismo da ismo. Yeah, uh, his manner. I mean, it's it, it some some sense. I mean, do you get? Is, is he saying that I'm I'm not that way anymore? I'm not in no. Judaism anymore. Yeah, that's why I like the recitative Oti here because for you've heard of my former way of life when in Judaism this. I mean, that's a, a cumbersome way to put it. For you heard this, you know, my former way of life in Judaism, colon, I was persecuting the church of God and laying waste to her, you know, or yeah. destroying her. Um, so he's still in Judaism is, I think, maybe the implication, huh? I I do think so, yeah. So that um, to the issue of whether Paul is called or converted or what's the other word? Yeah, so just changed. Changed. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't. Again, I don't. I don't describe Paul's Damascus Road encounter or his life as a conversion at all, because that's switching allegiance from one deity to another, and Paul never does that. He still worships the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, but now he understands that God more fully through the lens of Jesus. Um. So I don't think he switched his allegiance at all. Mm -hmm. uh, He's not changing religion. Yeah. Right? From Judaism right. to Christianity. He's staying within Judaism. Yes. As God has revealed God's self. And I, I think Judaism. part of what he's going to do, I'm not a supersessionist. I'm not saying that like Christianity like supersedes or eclipses Judaism. But I'm more like a, I don't even know what the word would be, but like a climacticus. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, I think what Paul's going to do in this letter, especially as we get to chapter six, and he's working up to that, is he's going to suggest that the church, which he mentions here, um, is is the new Judaism. It's it's not maybe not the new, but it's the fulfillment or the climactic, like. Mm -hmm. It is Judaism at its truest essence, in its fullest essence, right? This is what it was supposed to to become all along. When we go back to Genesis, even Genesis uh, 35, where Benjamin is born, and you get the the 12th son to cap off the 12 tribes of uh, Israel, right? You're seeing the church in seed form, <laughs> if that's something we can say. Mm -hmm. And I think in Paul's mind, he's, he's essentially looking back at that long narrative arc of Israel's story. And he's saying, ah, the, the, that there it is in seed form in Genesis 35. And when we look across the sweep of history, it's come to its climax, to its fruition here in the church. This is, what it was supposed to be all along, nations gathered together under the banner of God. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's my view. <laughs> yeah, this is a important subject. Very um, important. I, I come at this from the perspective 
Ephesians, which, you know, people can discount, some do, and say, well, that's not written by Paul. We can ignore it, but there... You say that again, it cut out a little bit. Just say that oh, again. That, in the, that scholars think Ephesians isn't written by Paul, some. Right. Good number, uh, critically, and then, so therefore they can ignore the theology of Ephesians. In Ephesians, it's really clear that there is one people of God, and this is the church, the ecclesia, which, you know, we can problematically anachronistically we can read back like our modern conceptions of churches and denominations and all that history back but but initially it, it didn't con it didn't mean all that it does today it, it just right. means this is the assembled body this is the assembled members of a political entity that is built around the their head who is is Christ It'd be inconceivable to think of there being multiple bodies and multiple peoples. Right. But in fact, you know, Paul says there's one new humanity. Um, yeah. Uh, an uh, anthropos. There's one new humanity. There's one people. And that clearly the nations have been brought in to be fellow body members, fellow participants fellow heirs and so like there's this unity this profound unity so i mean i guess my question to you is how many peoples of god are there yeah there's one what do we do, what do, we do with uh modern uh or the, the different judaisms today are they lacking fulfillment oh yeah and not achieving or arriving at their calling and so yeah. they're they're they're, they're they're no longer God's people. Um, well, that's an interesting language to use the language of God's people. I think there is one people of God, and I think that okay. the one people of God uh, exist under the banner and headship of Jesus. Period. Period. And so when I look at when I look at you know, Judaism today in its various forms, Orthodox Judaism, a reformed, liberal, uh, secular. Yeah, I think this unacceptance or non-acceptance of Jesus as their head uh, yeah. doesn't, doesn't suffice. I don't think there are multiple covenants. Some people take that view, one for the Jewish people and one for everybody else the gentiles i don't i don't follow that line of thought yeah. um yeah and that i also i i wrestle here sorry to cut you off but i i as i read galatians i really i have some cautions about the modern day movement known as messianic judaism yeah yeah um and i i feel like if any new testament document calls that sort of movement into question it's galatians yeah that was my sense too having a doctoral seminar working really closely through galatians i thought just the revelation came to me oh my gosh judaism of paul's day and jesus day is essentially a cultural artifact mm -hmm. <laughs> it becomes a cultural artifact that christ fulfills you know right. and the new reality that is is occurring uh, people might call supersessionists. Uh, let's just try to stay with the wording of the New Testament. It's Christ fulfills or the, is the end, the goal of the law. 
and no longer under the old covenant. There's a new covenant. And uh, researching Romans 11, and writing a big essay, unfortunately not published yet, but that's a whole backstory there. But uh, researching Paul's use of Isaiah in, in, in uh, Romans 11, and then looking at Isaiah, Isaiah speaks of one covenant that's coming. It's really interesting, the covenant, the covenant. And so we're in that covenant now that uh, God's right arm has, has set up. Jesus has set up his strong arm. Uh, so anyway, let's... Yeah, didn't, we, didn't that come up like just as a tangent in one of the earlier podcasts? Like there was something uh, I can't remember. I can't remember. It was my textual variant, tangents. textual variant or something that struck that up. But yes, yeah, sticking with yeah, the... Textual variant there that in Romans 9... Is it four, right around four and five that there's, you know, theirs is the covenants. Yes. In fact, there is, I think there's stronger evidence for a, a sing, the singular. Mm. Theirs is yeah. The yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, I like the idea of sticking with the language of the, the scripture. Um, Cause a term like supersessionist is derogatory. First of all, yeah. it's divisive, but yeah, I wonder if we could, I don't know if it'd be coining a term, but fulfillmentist <laughs> uh, yeah. perspective, you know. Um, well, you know, people are talking, what's the nature of scripture? Christocentric, you know, doesn't seem quite right or Christo, you know, Christological reading. But rather, what, what people are preferring is Christotelic. So this mm. idea of, of Christ being the goal of it all, like that is kind of where theologians and, and bi- those doing biblical theologies are coming to that term, which kind of get, gets past, you know, the centricity of Christ, because not all of Scripture is, is about Christ, right? That's the problem there. But it does point, it might point to him, or certain aspects point to him. Certainly Christ, though, is the goal of it, the climax. Yeah. And I think that's But it's say. interesting, though, like when you read Revelation, it's very, very clear that there is a uh, Christ is the center of the church. He's the the ecclesia is patently Christocentric. Christ Absolutely. is, of course, the head of it, but he's also the center of it. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, you you get that in the throne room. You get that uh, in the New Jerusalem. This very s- Christ is the very centerpiece kind of thing. Um, well, anyways, let's. Have we taken a break yet in this no, episode? Let's hear from our sponsor, and we'll come back and look at the second half of Galatians 1.13. Looking for creative ways to launch your biblical language studies to the next level? We here at Glossa House create resources with you in mind. We've created a stock of innovative and cutting-edge audio, video, digital, and print resources to help you reach your language goals. Visit glosahouse.com to find what you've been looking for. Glosa House, language resources for the global community. Welcome back. We're in the middle of verse 13 of chapter 1, and we we're just on the threshold. We're looking at that OT, which is the content of what they've heard. What Paul says you've heard about my former conduct in Judaism. And we'll come back to this topic of Judaism uh, and and what 
what is Paul's understanding, particularly as he argues through Galatians, appealing to Abraham and the covenants and, and that kind of thing. But what is it that they did hear about Paul? Yeah, I mean, this this has to connect. Verse 13 has to connect with verse 14, too. Um, yeah. He's, he's going to give a sort of laundry list here of what they heard. They heard that he was persecuting the assembly of God and that he was destroying it or laying waste to it. They heard that he was, in verse 14, advancing in Judaism uh, beyond all of his compatriots or all of his peers um, that were his own age, right? And they had mm -hmm. heard that he was extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers, right? Um, and so we'll read that next time. But so that those that's quite a bit that he was hearing or that they were hearing. Yeah. Um, and then once we get to 15, well, you get a huge sort of Allah there. Uh, or a, a there, I think that is not an Allah, but a contrastive there, I think. But uh, we can argue about that when we get there. Okay. We talk about it. You. Yeah. So yeah. they were hearing all these bad things, and you've come to find out later it's going to scare them, right? It, it had scared them. Um, and so it causes this disposition of suspicion, toward Paul because he's wanting to come and be among these congregations. And uh, we find out that eventually they, they do welcome him in and that they cannot believe the change that has happened in him. And so as we think again about change, right, it's any change from it, change was the default position was looked down upon, but, unless it was a change from vice to virtue. And in this instance, that is precisely what's happened. Oh. Yeah, and this is your dissertation area, Paul the Change Agent. You could look it up at our website. Paul the Change Agent, if you want to read about this in antiquity. Uh, and I think I remember reading, uh, I don't know if your research got into Epictetus, but his Enchiridion, he's a philosopher mm. of the late 1st century, early 2nd century, and he, I remember his, he had a discussion about um, making fun of people who started with a philosophy and didn't right. continue with it. Yes. You know, and he, he's like, you know, these, these zealous initial convert, uh, converts or, the, you know, adoptees of a new philosophy, they start to change their dress right away. You, right. Know, you know, we're going to live differently. But then he says, but then they, when they move away from that, you know, they're, they're scorned and laughed at. Yeah. That kind of yeah. goes along with your point here. Um, and I think perhaps, you know, something that we need to keep looking at Paul in this regard is, so yeah, he was doing certain things, but then he stopped and now he's advocating something else. And I think you've already kind of implicitly raised it. Is he to be trusted? Yeah. So this is a, this is, in my opinion, this is uh if we're only 13 verses in but if you if you just stop and think for a moment there's a tension point here and it's a very very thick tension right because Paul in the first 10 verses has accused really 6 through 10 you know those four verses he came out swinging and accused 
the people in Galatia and the the troublemakers Trouble. changing the gospel. Yet here he is. He's going to say, "Oh, I've changed." <laughs> so how do they not get away with change, but he does? And the answer is that. His change was different because it was a change from vice to virtue, whereas their change was taking something virtuous and going in the direction of vice. Yeah. And we're going to see in verse 15 that God was well pleased yeah. <laughs> to, to set me apart. You know, so Paul's like, look, God had a special hand on me. Uh, it's kind of hard to argue against that. It's like, really, Paul? Right. Yeah, God set me apart from my mother's womb. Right. Well, Whoa, so that's pretty serious stuff. So in verse 13, just to kind of end end our, our look at verse 30, 13, and then we'll go to verse 14 next time. But we see these imperfect tense verbs, et diokon, et por thun. And then verse 14, pro ekkopton. These are all imperfect active indicative first singulars. And, and what's being profiled grammatically uh, is imperfective aspect, which was mm. ongoingness. I was persecuting the the assembly of God. I was destroying it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond. I like translating that as kept <laughs> or kept on. Yeah, and kept. Yeah, we again. This is if you want to see our philosophy of translation. We've not applied it to Galatians, but Michael and I worked through Mark and. John, I mean, we 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 wrestled with different ways to convey this ongoing aspect, and one of the ways we 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 came up was kept kept doing to keep doing something or to continue doing something um, just for some variety. Yeah. yeah. What What do you? I know we're coming to a close here, but I, I do think it'd be a shame to close this episode out without addressing a couple of things. First of all. Um, I guess let's just go in word order. I, I want to look, I want to talk just for a moment about the word persecuting. And then I want to talk about the word ecclesia. Um, yeah. So there's been in, I guess in the last decade, um, Candida Moss was kind of the one really sort of spearheading this movement, at least in my eyes, but this, this uh, sort of scholarly pushback in the guild against uh, the idea that, physical persecution against Christians really wasn't a thing in the first century and maybe even the second or third. Um, I, man, I even, even this far on, I, I resist some of that, but I guess my, my perspective on persecution is, has uh, stretched a bit because I've, you know, I understand that persecution can be economic it can be social, it can be physical, um, you know, and when you are excluded from something or when you're uh, kicked out of an assembly, like those are, can be forms of persecution. So do you think that, uh, I guess, persecution existed, was it small scale, widespread against Christians in the first century? And what do you think maybe were the predominant forms of persecution? Well, I, I do think it existed. Uh, we have in the different letters uh, indications of suffering for Jesus and being you know verbally abused. I think 
unfortunately, a lot of it happened from within the synagogues. Uh, and in other words, by by people professing, you know, Judaism of the day, probably because of different reasons, but one of them being that they were stealing converts or potential converts out of the synagogues. And so in the book of Acts, yeah. there's this financial component, like you're losing bene potential benefactors and, and membership. Um, there were many Gentiles who supported uh, synagogue development and even patronized them and helped build them. And it says in the book of Acts that as Paul was preaching the gospel, he'd often go to the synagogues first. Right. Then there would be a sizable portion, particularly of, of God-fearing Gentiles, that is, people who were sympathetic to Jewish faith, but uh, but didn't weren't full converts in the sense of, well, you know, becoming circumcised and... Uh, change you know one couldn't change their ethnicity so it was kind of a difficult thing so they were kind of attending the synagogue supporting of it and then when paul came and preached jesus and like the implication is you don't need to come under the law the old covenant there's a new thing set up uh they left and this seemed to cause persecution so there was a socioeconomic basis to it i i, I think it's pretty clear that they were persecuted i mean you have jesus predicting that people were going to hate them. And, uh, you know, so he said, come be my disciple, you know, follow me. People, just as they hated me, they're going to hate you. So if Jesus predicting this, uh, and some people might say, well, th that was put in the words of the church, you know, into the mouth of Jesus. Well, even right. so, if that were the case, that would show that they're being persecuted. So I think that there was persecution going on. Paul here is pursuing. It's interesting to look up Dio Dioko, uh, again, going to the LSJ document, it means to pursue, chase in war or hunting. That's the first definition given. Uh, you can also pursue in terms of love, <laughs> pursue, pursue or seek after in terms of a lover. But but then there's also this uh, idea of driving or chasing away. And that is kind of interesting. So again, this is of looking at the classical range of meanings of this word so is there a sense that paul that paul is trying to push these people out of the umbrella of judaism so to speak in other words saying you're not legitimate here like what you're doing is not what we're doing get out yeah so is he saying get out uh is he trying to drive them away but then he does say he was uh destroying them which is portheo, so at the end of verse 13, to attack and cause complete destruction, pillage, make havoc of, destroy. So it does seem that Paul, you know, at least according to the book of Acts, was pretty much, you know, trying to round people up, approving of Stephen's death, and who knows how many other deaths he was approving of or whatever. I think right. the book of Acts is definitive. So unless, you know, unless you can say, well, the Christians were making this up, and putting it back into the mouths of Jesus, like I think there's plenty of evidence that there was persecution, as long as we kind of understand what that that looked like. I think you yeah. know, excommunicating people from their fellowship, yeah. uh, and families, towns. Yeah, yeah. I think part of the reason that Paul leans so heavily on kinship language is because of the excommunication factor. Um, 
yeah. people being excommunicated from families. And so now there's this new family yeah. sort of thing going on. But I, yeah, I, all of Fredrickson's argument there that religion was so connected to one's family that in order to help people get over like a major hurdle of like worshiping, coming out of paganism to worship, you know, the one true living God, that there had to be like a change of family status. So she lays out this kind of connection between family and religion and argues that this adoption language is very significant from that perspective. That's fascinating research. I think she's right on that. Mm. Yeah. There's a new family. And if you, when, once you have a new family, once you belong to a family, you're able to worship the God of that family. Yeah, I think in Eastern religions and contexts, that's much more easy to understand than in Western ones. Again, here in Hawaii, I mean, Eastern religions are everywhere, right? We, there's, there's a lot of Buddhism here, but there's some uh, Hinduism and uh, Shintoism and a lot of other isms from various Asian cultures. Um, it's very, you know, idols are very much a real thing here. Whereas, you know, I grew up in Ohio and Kentucky. That wasn't a thing. Like people yeah. considered a Mary statue an idol. I guess you could make it that, but I understand the Mary statue to function differently. Nevertheless, there's a lot of idols around here in Hawaii and uh, you see them on a daily basis, actually We're surrounded by them. Um, yeah. And it's a, a much more real and live thing. I do think persecution existed. And the argument that, you know, if you're going off the new Testament, well, then you're doing circular reasoning. Uh, I, I kind of don't buy that. I, I, I cringe at the idea of you can use every other ancient, set of documents but just not the the new testament or the scriptures because as soon as you do that you're accused of circular reasoning uh, i i don't buy that at all yeah. but let, let me let me uh just do this and then we'll end what about the word ecclesia and i want to get your sort of hot take on this um one of the the things that we hear a lot it's very common from pulpits um is this idea that ecclesia uh, means the called out ones. Have you heard this, Fred? Are you familiar with this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, etymologically, yeah. it is from ek, meaning out, and kaleo, uh, to call. So the called out ones. I mean, it, so etymologically, people could make that case very easily. I mean, you look up a BDAG lexicon, and in its the first line there, it says ek plus kaleo. You know, so, uh, but the, the, it's an old word. I mean, it's, it goes back to Euripides, 5th century, Herodotus, also 5th mm -hmm. century BC. And so word etymologies, you know, ancient, <laughs> still, ancient people still broke down words and talked about them in that way, by the way. I mean, you can find commentaries, what are called scolia, where they did that kind of thing. They're kind of, doing that to allegorize words, you know, to, to kind of link them to other ideas. But still, it shows that they were concerned about word makeups. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's not out of the question that people could still be aware of what this, you know, meant. But then we also have to deal with the weight of usage uh, and usage and 
And this word is used a lot. It's simply a, it's a political term. Uh, you know, it really does talk about, I guess, a people that are assembled for a special purpose. Yeah. And in that regard, we're not maybe too far away from called out, but really it's called out for political deliberation. <laughs> yeah, well, I I guess I kind of, it's another one of these, maybe, a, oh, it makes me a little uneasy when I, I hear that from a preacher. I mean, looking at the historicity of the word, um, it was in, in existence long before the idea of a church yes. was ever was yeah. on anyone's mind. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, the, the socio-political uh, aspect of it where it's a gathering or a sem- an assembly, yeah. I guess they're just, it, it feels, uh, it feels wrong to me then to, I guess over, I don't know. It seems like a word fallacy to me to do that whole the preposition means this and then the root noun means this. Therefore, you put them together and well, it means this. Yeah, um, I mean, the the thing is, the point that we're to be separated out from people. You don't need to look at this word to make that point. That that's the idea, right? That Paul will Paul will even say that later. God set me apart. There's a different way to say that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think it's like for preachers, it's a low-hanging fruit to make that point. But you're saying, and I would agree with you, that it's a questionable uh, word understanding that we need to not lean into so much. But preachers, you know, they're grasping for ideas, <laughs> grasping for things that they think can communicate. And I guess, it, you know, it sounds like they know a little bit of Greek and they can do this. It's fun. It's fun to work with the Greek text. It is, but you really do need to know the text. And uh, so I think what's maybe more significant here is that the church is profiled by its genitive modifier of God, the church of God, like the church of God. There is one singular assembly of that, that God of, of God, you know, so it is the one deal that God is attached to. And I think that that is significant. I don't think I'm importing the one thing. I mean, I don't know what other things God is attached to in that way, but the assembly that is belonging to God, the God, God's assembly. Yeah, I mean, even just, well, you were making the point socio-politically. I mean, right, I guess where I was going with this, I've done a lot of study, and I know you have too, or I believe you have too, on um, ancient associations. Yes, uh, guilds, right? Um, and at least early on, and I know even um, around the 50s, like when Paul's writing Romans, uh, I think strands of Judaism, including the church, were viewed as an association, and they could they could yeah. actually play that card. That's yes. when when the uh, Jews were expelled from Rome. In the 50s, uh, this was part of the argument for them to uh, be allowed back in, right? They played the association card that, look, our our roots as an association uh, are way older. We, In other words, we were here first, you know, before any of those other associations, like, reach back way further than 
yeah. a lot of other associations so they could appeal to antiquity as an association. And there were ecclesias of uh, mathematicians and Fire, leather workers. Yeah, firemen, leather workers. And I trade often. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, Burial associations, though. Exactly. Yes. And so people get proper burial, have a group of people come together and share resources and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so I resist the idea of using called out ones. Yeah. On one hand, because it goes against the antiquity of the word, but also when you look at the wider culture, there were all kinds of ecclesia groups and um, they weren't think, even thinking I, of I, themselves as called out ones. They were just an assembly part of a group. Yeah. And so you, you lose the cultural element of Christianity in that mix when you try to give ecclesia in terms of Christianity, a special meaning. I yeah. guess is what I'm saying. It just gives an excuse for people of the world who know better to laugh at us. You yes. Know? Yes. Yeah particularly classicists and people who know this are like, what are these preachers doing? You know, we just need to be better. We need to be better. We need to be better. Ed. You know, we need to be well-educated, thoughtful. We don't need to be intellectuals, but we need to be careful about how we represent ideas and you know, particularly us as teachers. But uh, yeah. thank you for that point up. Well, do we have, do you have a parting shot? Yeah. By the way, um, the, the, if any of you out there are listening or interested, the, the formal word for the study of ancient guilds is called collegia, like the word college. Yeah. Um, but uh, there's a work of Philip Harland has done great work on this. Philip yeah. Harland has several books, and then there's a book by him and uh, Kloppenberg, uh, biblical scholar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, collegia or collegium um, is what we're talking about here. Super, super. Interesting subject and go down like a bazillion rabbit trails. Yeah. And we're really learning more about them by accessing the inscriptional database so readily. Like search and start finding some of the inscriptions are like laws and regulations for how these collegia are organized. And so we learn a lot. One of my doctoral students now, Dr. John Enzer, you know, looked at that in terms of understanding um, the peniology that is the, the 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 laws of like how you punish people, like mm-hmm. why do they get in trouble in these groups. What do you do when someone violates some financial code of ethic or what? Blah 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 blah. So he's researching that and and then looked at how the Corinthians were treating Paul and vice mm-hmm. versa from that right. perspective of studying this ancient data bank of inscriptions. Now now that's we can search. Nice. Big, yeah. Well, yeah, I have a parting shot here. Um, we're still, as we speak, in the throes of this pandemic, you know, COVID, coronavirus. And um, yeah, so here, this comes from anonymous youth pastor. Um, the CDC now says it's okay for heaven to meet earth like a sloppy wet kiss. So I just thought that was kind of funny. Uh, drawing on a David Crowder song, you know. Okay. <laughs> or John Mark McMillan song, really. Sounds very romantic. Yeah, you you know what we're talking about that song. Uh, no. Oh, no. uh, what no. is it? Oh, how how he loves. It's that song that John Mark McMillan did, and then okay. David Crowder had to redo it so they could put it on the radio. The original lyrics were, 
when heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss and then uh david crowder changed it to heaven meets earth like an unforeseen kiss and made it more palpable yeah thank you crowder all right well thank you for for sticking with us in this long-winded episode but we've joked never that good if you have to explain it i guess yeah well it's more more my fault my cultural illiteracy so thanks for listening to us and we hope you uh have a good rest of your day and come back and listen to us talk about galatians chapter one take care aloha